0: The In Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Oh. hello everyone my name's michael i go by M on the internet welcome to thorn in your side now um i've got this new episode up and running here i'm still experiencing problems with my tech it's become a bit of a tradition with each episode but again got it solved i exploit the patience of my interviewee and away we go it seems to be a winning formula For this episode, I wanted to catch up with, well, like it was in the, in the last episode, a, a mate of whose a friendship has been made online through the social media. So it's quite exciting for me to actually meet them and hear them and see them online. Perhaps one day we might be able to do face-to-face, but uh, yeah, at the moment the, the pandemic is resolving itself as something of a barrier. But I would like to welcome Yasmina Brankovic from Perth. Hi Jazz. Kaya, uh, Kaya Michael,
1: Kaya from Bolo, Perth. Um Wajok, New England.
0: Jazz, do you want to just cause I'm just mucking around with the sound again. So I'm doing the very male thing of not being very multitasking. So just bear oh, with okay. me. You want to tell me a bit about yourself? I know we met through online anarchist circles, I guess quite some time ago now, but yeah, if you wanted to share with the audience what you do and the hats that you wear, Well, I'm a first-generation migrant settler on
1: Wajak land uh, here on the west coast of this great landmass. And I work in social services. I'm a project manager at the moment. And something that I enjoy doing, something that kind of links in very loosely, though, with my politics. Um, I think
0: that's enough for now. (laughs) Yeah, you work as a, a policy worker in the, the mental health field, I believe.
1: Yes? Yes. Well, that was, um, I've now kind of gone slightly uh, sideways. At the moment, I'm actually doing a project on Aboriginal family-led decision-making and, um, you know, addressing disproportionality of First Nations Children who are taken away from their families. So I'm kind of doing something that's a little bit different. But I have worked in mental health, yes, for a very long time, um, and I've worked for quite a long time for an Aboriginal community-controlled organisations. And so um, I guess that that's a broad kind of social field of health, and I really enjoy working at the intersections of social policy and health. And that's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it seems interesting in that it seems like with with your professional hat, you're able to explore how ongoing dispossession within Indigenous families is still continuing within Australia.
1: Yeah, that's something that is incredibly heart-wrenching, but it informs a lot of my thinking, uh, a lot of my political thinking, the privilege and honour that I've had to learn uh, alongside a lot of individuals and groups in our community is something that i apply as principles for a very different life i guess and it's incredibly rewarding (laughs) so um it's both you know it's it's there's a lot of emotions tied to it but a very clear-cut politics and so i'm not just being esoteric also call on something that isn't mine really it's more about the privilege that I've had to be led into those circles and to learn a lot about myself and about the world. so I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah it is the the tension that one experiences when they're trying to do this sort of stuff on a professional basis where you're having to gain the trust of the the people that you're working with still and trying to-
1: relationships. Build the relationships, and that's the most important thing. But once you build those relationships, they last and they're strong. And I have a lot of professional and personal relationships that I've built over the years, and that's really a rewarding part of my work. So that's that's kind of the most rewarding part of it, I think. So yeah, it, it's challenging. But I'm I'm actually, you know, I work at the intersection of mental health, homelessness, especially the need for housing. So of course you'll find. First Nations people disproportionately represented in the groups that are the most marginalised, and and you know that kind of comes with a territory if you know what I mean. So so you do have to open yourself up, and you have to learn, and you have to let go of a lot of preconceived assumptions and ways that you've been taught to work in this space, which are no longer relevant. So it's an ongoing learning curve so yeah i reflect on it a lot and i i'd like to think that i also apply it in how i think politically and act and i think we all act politically you know my job is very political my surroundings are highly political the things that i do um and the circles in which i move are highly political so none of those are silos in themselves
0: and uh, I think that the nature of how we struck up a friendship here, Jazz, is um, highly political. <laughs> oh, remind me. Well, I do recall when we first met, it was on the, the group that you admin on Facebook. Now, I'm going to have to be right in saying this because I've discovered it is important to get the group names correct. And I can go into that story, but is it Anarchists in Australia? Yes. So I took part in the group. Uh, you're adminning it. Uh, you're still adminning it, and um, yeah, able to kind of. Yes,
1: in there, to be honest. <laughs> I was looking at what one of someone commented last night. How usually, you know, <laughs> the admins of most groups on social media, the creme de la creme of politics, and I'm just like going, people <laughs> have a lot of time and energy, and I'm just going, mate. I'm a 47-year-old woman with two two teenagers in the house working full-time. You've got no idea.
0: I read that last (laughs) night, uh, Yaz, and I was wondering whether you were going to uh, buy into that, but, um, yeah. (laughs) I really had to laugh. I
1: I had to laugh. I I thought, oh, wow, I'm like the top of the pops, (laughs) you know, when it comes to the prestigious spaces of social media, political hierarchy. All right, never mind. It was just funny.
0: I think what's really under-examined, and I think these days it's it's quite a, a pertinent issue. It is the role of uh, social media activism and what that involves. I think being an admin of, a, of an activist and a, a political group can be can be very underestimated.
1: Well, maybe, but as you well know, I like to not like have to police that group. It actually pisses me off when people put <laughs> us admins in that position with you know the nonsense that sometimes gets posted, it's a lot better than it was yeah it may be but to be perfectly honest with you as far as the work that i do it's not i can reassure you that it's not something that i get high
0: on power <laughs> on. well it, it's great that you disclosed that yes because i was prepared to do a whole episode <laughs> where really we we're, un- we're unpacking
1: brain, down the bottom of the things that i do. <laughs>
0: Yasmina, the career activist, is doing a power play mm-hmm. regularly through admin in Facebook groups.
1: I'm not really entirely sure that I actually consider myself an online activism. Like sometimes that whole online thing helps. I think that there's been things like the Me Too movement that actually pretty much spread online. And yet I do think it was an important, important movement, if you can call it a movement something that's been completely not organised centrally and took a very spontaneous form on social media. It definitely has had an impact. It still has an impact. I was just earlier this morning reading up all about Marilyn Manson, for instance. And so the thing is, like, sometimes people like Marilyn Manson tell you exactly what they are about, and obviously this has been an ongoing stream of revelations, whether coming from him or people who knew him. And so... Now, the fact that this has happened in the Me Too moment when Evan Rachel Wood has actually come forward and identified herself as one of the survivors.
0: Now to the disturbing allegations against musician Marilyn Manson. Actress Evan Rachel Wood posted a statement to Instagram this week saying that the musician quote, started grooming me when I was a teenager and horrifically abused me for years. Would testified before Congress in 2018 about a then-unnamed abusive partner. She was speaking in support of the Sexual Assault Survivors
1: Bill of Rights. Now, that, that, I don't think that would have happened prior to the Me Too movement. And we still kind of have this very random collection of men who've been taken off the high pedestal. still have a hell of a lot you know that's just the tip of the iceberg however but you cannot not feel reverberations kind of trickling down if you'd like (laughs) so I think that that's where the online uh, world has helped but I certainly do not think that activism advocacy organizing whatever you want to call it is something that you can kind of do online if you get my drift
0: I get myself involved in various things and um, for me it's not so much how I apply an activism exclusively or entirely through social media, but rather how social media has a use as a medium um, and how it complements my greater activist work. Um, That's how I, I, I try to approach it. Yeah. What are some of the things then that um, that you um, that you do, Jazz? That that's in real life as well as on the, on the internets?
1: What apart from my work? Oh, I don't know. I, I do various bits and pieces. Um, probably participating and supporting what's been happening in Perth in terms of the Black Lives Matter or slash Indigenous sovereignty. I kind of. Pretty much, like to think of myself as someone who acts in spaces that support that, rather than lead or in any way um, meaningfully. Kind of, um, sorry, rather than lead it, if you'd like. So, so I, I kind of see my my own work at the moment as being at that end. On the other hand, um, I've been thinking and reading and writing. Um, a lot about the far right and anti-fascism and so I think that one of the things that I do for instance is well I make sure that um, I know if there's a counter group organizing among young white nationalists in Perth just on the same day as Black Lives Matter rally those sorts of things Mm. I think that a lot of that I wouldn't. I'm not sure whether I would call it activism or anything. That's just that's just work um, that needs to be done at the moment. That a lot of people, a lot of other people, do a lot better than me. But I'd like to think that I keep an eye on what's going on in Perth and WA. So that takes up some of my time. You know, all my spare time, whatever. <laughs> um, and you know, I have an academic background, and I am. I think I have a problem dealing with a lot of discussions that are not nuanced and complex and, and uh, discussions about anti-fascism need to be. Because one of the reasons they need to be is because in Australia, it's still not taken as seriously as it should be. And I guess I dedicate a lot of my time to that.
0: The last year or so has uh, presented some new dialogue and also new ways of, of looking at how fascism exists today. I think, uh, well, if my last episode with Jason was anything to, to indicate, um, I think there is now some space to start reflecting on the Trumpageddon. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. what myself and Jason uh, were able to touch upon was the fact that, um, and yeah, and the more I talk about it, the more I become increasingly confident in saying it and that I think Trump really did introduce a, a modern, more revised, updated variant of fascism. You can interchange it between proto-fascism and uh, neo-fascism. To me, that doesn't really matter, but uh, I suppose the, the F word is what is Um, But what I suppose what's really pertinent with our conversation right now, Jazz, is that um, the that the links between Trumpism and what's been happening, what's happening in Australia are actually a lot more uh, apparent than um, than than what you would think at first blush. I can immediately Mm -hmm. think about this um, this dickhead MP that basically has an electorate up the road from where I live. um, whose name is Craig Kelly. Yes, (laughs)
1: I think we all know Craig Kelly very well.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) The Prime Minister has finally called in renegade backbencher Craig Kelly to try to limit the damage from his promotion of unofficial COVID science, but not before it had become an unholy mess and a serious distraction to the government's vaccination campaign. Even us in WA, um, we've got a few of those around here. So, yes, Craig Kelly and George Christensen and I think that, you know, stuff people like Andrew Hastie have to say sometimes is, of course, we know Andrew Hastie who is really exploiting the discourse of white genocide in South Africa Um, and actually, you know, played a prominent role in the march of mainly, well, for all, white South Africans in Perth, not that long ago. So we've got, um, I think in WA we have, and while I wouldn't necessarily identify people like that as the far right, the fact that that discourse exists in the parliamentary sphere is probably hits the nail on the head in terms of what I think is going to happen in the future. You know, in a way, Trump presaged all of that in the US but there's no reason to believe that something like Trump cannot happen in Australia. So that's one thing. Yeah. The second thing is that however you define fascism, there are some key characteristics of that. But the, the, the key defining characteristic of it, an existence of an imaginary a nation under threat, um, that's why, you know, that's why white uh Racism has such a privileged point in Australian far right and Australian fascism. There are a lot of parallels with older styles and versions of fascism in Europe, but fascism in Europe was also a diverse thing. And you know, I'm a historian who actually studied this stuff. And so there is no reason to there is no reason to my mind to hesitate to use the, the word fascism when describing what is going on at the moment and what I see as a primary political threat globally. It just has different manifestations. There's Modi in India. There's Johnson in the, in the UK who is more like an old-style conservative, but the UK far right is on the rise. Um, and then there's the rising, what I think that the, the very much the emboldenment of the far right, groupuscules and grassroots far right in the USA, which has not gone away. We've just kind of entered this different phase right now, you know, in, in the post-Trump era, so to speak. So I don't understand the why that why we are still talking about that as if we are talking about, you know, a far-flung fantasy world. Because it's not, that's kind of what I think is, you know, what I'd like to
0: contribute to, perhaps. Well, that sense of, of really promoting it as a very real thing and something that needs to be identified and discussed and, and acted uh, in response to, rather than either ignoring or minimising uh, the event in the US Capitol building, which was probably um, Trump's last act, <laughs> last act before he, he really signed off. It could be interpreted as, well, firstly, an insurrection. Uh, I want to call it the Adventure Time Insurrection. I'm hoping that catches on.
1: Mathematical!
0: What I find is particularly alarming is that there was uh, quite a coalition of people that took part in that attempt. Uh, of insurrection and i think this is where there are some limitations right now with the commentaries on fascism where we tend to still park back to the during world war Two and post-world war Two types of fascism in europe where it's quite monolithic presented in a very homogenized manner in many ways set Forth the the branding culture that um that corporations <laughs> definitely found themselves keying into during the Keynesian yeah. times post World War II, um, but we find ourselves continually comparing things back to that standard. Whereas um, I think there is a diversity there, and I think with that that the the Adventure Time insurrection, it, I think that diversity was was definitely on show, uh, where you see different strands of the US right. Getting together, actively organizing how they were going to storm the White House, what to do in the event of escalation. There does seem to be very concrete evidence uh, and continually is being produced um, where there is signs of active organizing between organizations across the far right US spectrum. Mm.
1: That's right. And I think that that's something that's not necessarily. Out of the realm of possibility here. In fact, you know, it's. I mean, there's been a lot of infighting between various far right groups in the past, but that does not stop them from kind of molding and and refashioning themselves um, constantly. That's kind of an ongoing process. That's kind of the only way fascism can really survive when it's still in that emergent stages. And look, this is yet, you know, why why preventing and learning, you know, a lot of things from the past can actually help us illuminate what we are doing right now and why I think that's important. And in particular in Western Australia, people tend to be a little bit very laissez-faire about it. And it's either seen as, oh, let's just ignore them, don't give them air, or it's seen as well, they had the right to their own opinion, which is, you know, one one of those kind of shades of that kind of both sides argument and kind of tried to get to people. And perhaps what I really need to do is put these words on paper. I mean, I kind of hesitate a bit because there are people who do it far better than me, you know, people like Slak Boston in Australia. And also it's not like the Perth is the center of the far right in the world. It seems like Victoria is really where it's at, but, I do want to make sure that people here understand that. And there are, you know, there are, I, I've seen a lot of people change their minds. I remember having some discussions with activists in Perth when Reclaim Australia first held their rally. And that was seen, you know, as a minority that is likely to just go away if it's ignored and that, We shouldn't, like, go out and counter them because that would be provoking them to, you know, violence. Like, these are literally the arguments that I've had people toss about. Mm. And that's changed now. That's, you know, over the years, people have seen that that's this is not going to go away. And then Christchurch happened. And I think when that event happened, a, a lot of people were taken aback and started looking at it a bit more seriously I think that's that's kind of that's that's where we are at now we are now at this stage where yes there is very much no more room for denial but the real question is what now and what exactly do we do now I can really only hope that I can add something from this end of the country
0: I think the contentious issue of how activists or lefty types respond to the threat of the right within Australia, I think there is a mix of of what the local issues are versus what should be a, a grand, overarching plan for political action amongst lefty types. Maybe, Jazz, we can talk a little bit about the pandemic lockdown that's been happening in Perth, because that was something that I was very keen to share notes on. Mm -hmm. So, within Perth, you guys just went through a week lockdown, uh, whereas, us over in the other end of the country, it might be a bit of old news, but I, I would like to get your insight and see what's the same, what's different.
1: Oh, look, you know, at the end, well, we've just emerged from a five-day lockdown. We had one case of COVID identified last Sunday and the city pretty much within a few hours of the announcement went into lockdown. Um, it was fairly non-eventful, to be honest. <laughs> it's like Perth people are fairly compliant and you can see why we are such a police state. <laughs> Although, you know, I'm not complaining this time. But people are fairly compliant. Mask wearing was mandatory. I really didn't see, maybe if I saw one person and a very elderly kind of gentleman walking in front of his house without a mask, that's totally the only person I've seen without a mask because Mark McGowan said, wear masks and people wore masks. And that that's it's very simple in Perth, right? And so it, it stayed on that one case. We are out now. I think that one of the things that struck me watching this as someone who works in social services and was had an insight into, you know, the social sector, social service sector working at this time, is how well prepared we were. So even the government departments, which are perennially slow and, and ineffective, actually managed to immediately dis- distribute 3 million masks to the frontline workers as well as people who, say, living in the homeless hostels, people who are on the streets and so on. So that actually, you know, happened fairly quickly and that that was good. And so I think that we have learned a lot from what happened in other states and particularly in Victoria. But one of the big differences here is that we didn't go on and on and on without a lockdown and kind of hope that the track and trace will deal with everything. Uh, It was a snap lockdown, it went hard and fast, and it didn't drag on. And so it stayed on that one case. And so it was pretty remarkable, I think. The things that are not necessarily due to COVID and lockdowns, but but stuff that, that gets brushed under the carpet, like homelessness, you know. We've just had a fairly dramatic period, January, in Perth, with one of the 10 cities being broken up. We have a situation where there is 70,000 people who at the end of the moratorium the rental moratorium in March will be in a very difficult situation and so those are the things that are far more prominent or I think should be far more prominent here you know of course that all gets exacerbated by the pandemic but we really need to start thinking about people who will suffer in the coming year and I don't think that there is enough attention paid to that just yet.
0: It's interesting that you raise how Perth health authorities and public services had a reasonable amount of preparedness and organisation for the event of lockdown. Comparing that to the Sydney experience getting closer this time last year, uh, for me it, it's still a burning memory that the shit really seemed to, to hit the fan around March where the the general memory was really faffing about, flailing. Your job provider wasn't necessarily knowing what to do because they were following the lead of state government. State government didn't really know what to do because they were very reticent to uh, do big government things. So they tried to keep it as as business as usual as much as possible. They pretty much responded to um, stuff that, that happened I think primarily through a lot of community organising, expert opinion through the health sector. So in many ways, there was a bit of a coalition there that, that, the, that the well state, New South Wales government at least, um, had to accede to in terms of coming up with a, a pandemic response plan. And that all just seemed to really start reasonably coalescing over a few months after that. But, yeah, that March and April period was pretty hairy. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this on previous mm. episodes where I've literally lost track of time. Just certain chunks of time were just taken away from my memory. That That's yeah. a very odd thing to, to, to think back on. But that seems to be a, a big difference between what we experience in Sydney and, and how you guys in Perth seem to counter it. And plus... There's also sounds coming from state government where and I think it still harks back to their sentiment in March last year where there was criticisms of Perth, particularly because it is a Labour government, that they're too interventionist, that the plan was too grand, the idea of government being too big. So lockdown strategies still present as, uh, as something that's it's quite distasteful amongst all the other strategies that are available Um, So if it's been one thing that this has definitely exposed on the East Coast is that there is still that contentious nature between state governments on on what to do with pandemic response. And then you've got SCOMO at federal level going, those guys can fight. It takes the attention away from me. (laughs) That just seems to be the sentiment.
1: Yeah. Look, yeah. Western Australia, like I said, is a very, very peculiar state and, 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 um, you cannot really necessarily say what happens in Victoria and you say, well, will happen here? The government had one very clear goal, and that is zero COVID. Whereas what I see happening in New South Wales is that the government went for the suppression rather than an elimination strategy.
0: Oh, and also discussions about how we live with it on the long-term basis.
1: Yeah, the whole idea of living with COVID is actually really scary. And I don't... I, I, I'm glad I'm not in New South Wales <laughs> because the, I mean, elimination has to be it, right? Now, of course, we we'll, may not. We 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 got this case after ten months of the last community infection recorded, so we've got ten months of no cases. So once you say zero COVID, then you have to work out exactly what you're going to do in a In case one case emerges, and we everyone was very clear that we were go into a snap lockdown. And so that message was unambiguous. It was communicated well, thanks to the fact that there is like this overwhelming approval rating of Mark McGowan. Everyone will listen to Mark McGowan. This unprecedented level of trust in the state government. Uh, I actually have never seen anything like it before. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing because we need to be critical when that's deserved. But it's also very clear that the government had the policy of elimination, not just suppression. And so that's pretty much how it worked out. That's what That was the core difference between New South Wales and WA. Now, of course, WA is isolated, small. It's, well, small population-wise. <laughs> um, it's actually a pretty vast chunk of the continent, And I think that that's what went to our favor. But other than that, the the embargo on travel, for instance, all of that really contributed, border closures, all of that means that we only had one case in the past 10 months. And as I've been talking to you, I just saw the ABC News flash um, today, zero cases, so seventh day in a row um, of no cases. um so that's that's pretty extraordinary
0: i'm pretty reluctant to try to present as some bush epidemiologist but you do a lockdown it's something that's state coordinated something that has the community support there is confidence behind whatever strategy is put in place um it 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 does seem to work yeah and it does boil down to of course that idea of short-term pain but uh, there are long-term benefits That practice is not so much across the states in australia not so much a health-based debate but rather i think it's one that's still rendered within the philosophies of the the governments that run each state
1: actually yes by and large i think that the ama and most health bodies here were very are very much in support of what the government's doing i so yeah it's kind of a no-brainer and To be honest with you, yeah, sure, it's an inconvenience, but, you know, it really pales into insignificance that week's, not even a week, five-day lockdown, right, really pales into insignificance with the repercussions of COVID and the kind of fault lines that COVID has caused. first day working from home, I was a bit like deer in the headlights, kind of, ah, this is hard. and But, you know, you get used to it. And I actually am working from home for another week. As someone who works in social services, our organisation is, and generally the sector, is very adamant that there will be no one there on Monday and it will be, like, deep cleaned or whatever. (laughs) And then we have a choice of, you know, working from home. And so I said, you know, I think I might work from home and that's not an issue so I like that flexibility and something we have to have we just have to have it. I think that we are all quite aware here this will go on for 2021 that until such time as everyone is vaccinated we will need to maintain a lot of the measures there's um, no doubt in my mind though that this means that 2021 is going to be another turbulent year. So <laughs> there's so much work to be done. There's there's the vaccine campaign that I think needs to get going. That's not just limited to stupid TV ads, but it really does confront anti-vaxxer movement and beyond them, you know, the overlaps with the QAnon and various other conspiracy theories. I really do need that. I think we need that. I was reading yesterday that in First Nations communities, the rollout of the vaccine will actually be organised and coordinated by the, the, the National Aboriginal Health Peak Body, which is a great idea, and that there will be health workers employed who will go to communities and talk to people and explain to them why the vaccine, what it is, how it works Um, Which is fantastic, which is really what we need to see Mm. um, pretty much across the board in various formats. And so I think that we will keep confronting a little um, flare ups, most likely until such time as um, we have at least, what is it, 80 or 90% vaccine coverage.
0: Yeah, and also maybe looking at how the ongoing impacts of these last two years are going to be, I guess, forever.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think that we are still living through it and it's really difficult to reflect, you know, for human beings to reflect and start something that is still pretty much an ongoing event, We are not in a post-pandemic world. We are still very much in the middle of it. Mm. And so, you know, reflecting on something that's going on is very difficult for us. But I guess we can reflect on what's happened in our immediate past then.
0: Perhaps for the remainder of the podcast, Jazz, what we can talk about is maybe immediate political prospects One immediate example that comes to mind is um, like I volunteer at a bookshop, an Anchor's bookshop in Sydney Cordura Books. And Mm -hmm. one of the immediate and I'd say successful activities that the volunteers at the shop has done is, is come up with a pretty robust COVID safe plan. Now, that's a very interesting challenge for an anarchist bookshop because you're trying to jockey state requirements versus your basic anarchist principles and also trying to apply all of that within the running of a community project like a bookshop, which has a library yeah. space and also a meeting space and um, stuff for social interaction. So over the last couple of months, come up with a COVID safe plan that, um, that I feel strikes a good balance so there's that uh mutual aid networks still uh, i think are, are happening organically see yeah i think that i've learned a bit from how difficult it is
1: to run something that is just beyond just helping people in a very middle class <laughs> suburb. There hasn't been much need for it uh, because the people that really do need this stuff are not going to be online in our mutual mutual aid groups. And the people who are really in need are the people who live in the remaining, say, uh, public housing uh, flats in mainlands amidst the gentrified surroundings, and that's not engaging people like that. Isn't you're not going to do it by making a mutual aid Facebook group. That that won't happen. So I think that the whole concept of of mutual aid and how we've we've come to here, it all emerged organically as the pandemic arrived in Australia, of course, and so we haven't really had the time to think about it much. But I think I will think about it, and I think it's important to think about it. I think I noted uh, some talk about mutual aid not being really the the way to go for salties, (laughs) (laughs) laugh thinking about that conference whatever you (laughs) know like go and do your thing and show me how you're gonna rise up I'll just keep doing what I'm doing I'm very interested in the whole kind of using mutual aid as a way of organizing people so I'm that's what I think mutual aid should eventually do it's not just about you know being there to connect someone with the the grocery shopper Mm. of course that helps But through that, you know, how you actually engage people and how you, for want of a better word, educate people is the challenge. So that's going to be an ongoing thing, I think, for me to think about. I'll add it to the list.
0: For me, it's been convenient in the sense that lends things for me wearing both my activist and professional hats so the barriers for mutual aid for me that present themselves involve limits to digital literacy so how one accesses a smartphone computers paying your internet bill how to actually use the hardware and all the peripherals connected to that stuff and also one thing that i have noticed in this last year is a real entrenchment of social invisibility And that's what definitely presents a very pertinent class discussion that I think does resurface the debates within lefty types about what class looks like, especially within the context of the pandemic, what still remains within the shadow Mm. and how projects like online mutual aid may or may not be addressing that shadow. I think... Those are the things that that would need to be, from my experience last year, would be uh, desirable to address. I don't think capital T, capital L, the left, have the capacity to immediately look at that. Rather create Easter conferences where they just want to rip into political ideologies. But anyway... That's something that uh, that I particularly like to focus on. And I suppose podcast projects like this is where I get the uh, ability to to explore that. What do you think that, Jazz is the, that, that issue of invisibility, digital literacy, are those two big issues to look at?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We are definitely looking at the people who've been made invisible by the system. So, you know, bringing that into to our attention and to people's attention is important. And I guess that's that's kind of what I do kind of on a daily basis almost. It's a it's a challenge for the left because the left is small, inefficient and disorganized. And we really need to have much more honest discussions about why that's the case. I absolutely despair about a left that whose focus is actually not on the enemy, but this an, a system of amorphous global elites. I've noticed that discourse on the left and it frightens me. I mean, we all know what the discourse of you know, the implications of what that is. As if the left has not at all re emerged. You know, the left still, still hasn't re emerged following the fall of the Soviet Union, to be perfectly honest with you.
0: I think many elements of the left still are back in those times.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and 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 so how 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 do you get things done then? I find that I, this is what brought me to anti-fascism as a political framework, which is not really how it's usually thought about. Because of, this neatly brings us back to the beginning of that discussion, right? And an anti-fascism that is actually firmly focused on what the enemy is, i.e. that is the rise of the far right, the rise of authoritarianism, the ways in which that global elite actually can mould itself and the ways in which we need to fight is that are not based on the old ways because I have absolutely no time for doing things that have been done and that are kind of irrelevant right now. And so this is what I aim to explore a bit more in 2021
0: i think that's something that, that really came as uh as well last year for me it presented as a very stressful moment in that capital t capital l the left didn't necessarily have we're in a position to respond to to the events that were happening last year and hey, i'm still having a bit of a think what my relationship is mm. with that again yeah, you know the
1: black lives matter happened and um even as, you know, much of the so-called radical left wants to say that the Black Lives Matter is a liberal thing, therefore you should not, you know. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I'm actually in absolute dismay about some of the stuff that I hear and see. I think that that's reactionary, to be honest. There's nothing radical about that. And we need to like I said, redefine ourselves. You can draw on Marx, Kropotkin, you can draw on Trotsky, you can go even to bloody draw and Tony Cliff. It doesn't really, uh, unless your politics is really grounded in the now, it's not going to do anything. So I really have a little, very little time for outmoded and anachronistic discussions these days. And that's probably why I feel myself really to be on the outside of that. You know, cliquish left. That's that's what you get.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm kind of of the same uh, lifestyle patterns these days, although uh, you, I still kind of find myself in the, the odd skirmish here and there, vis a vis with uh, anarchism in Australia, <laughs> that Facebook group. Just, uh, I think it's just a case of you find yourself just treading in dog shit, and it's like, oh, okay, I shouldn't be, I should be looking at the ground a bit more while I'm walking. But, you know, <laughs> clean off your shoe, keep going, I suppose. Yes.
1: Yes. Thanks for this opportunity, Michael. I don't, I don't know how many people will find it incredibly interesting to listen to me for an hour, but good luck with the podcast.
0: Well, I think it's also a a good opportunity to to keep contact with people. I'm hoping to maybe connect with you again uh, via the podcast, Jazz. Like I said at the start, it's just kind of nice to to see you and hear you for once, rather than reading you.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I have no idea when I'll be able to actually fly to Sydney or Melbourne. I think we know. We don't really know. Probably not until next year, I suspect. Oh, maybe, if we are lucky. I mean, it's not that the borders are... Even if the borders open, I think the whole concept of travel is going to be very changed. And so it's not like, you know, I can just go to Melbourne for a work conference or anything. It's it's not going to be the same. But then again, you know, there's a lot about the, the, the old normal we don't really want, so
0: yeah this time of the year i'm normally um trying to figure out uh how much money i can kind of scrabble together to Mm. to put towards things for the remainder of the year but a lot of that involves how much money i can put towards travel Uh, you know i tend to just kind of scuttle up and down the east coast of australia but because of hard borders it's uh it can be a very difficult thing to forecast at the moment so just kind of playing yes. it by ear, although a recent big payment of car insurance uh, that I need to do, I think, is 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 going to provide uh, an immediate governing of what my money is going to go towards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there is it that. is a
1: bit like that, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's
0: a bit of a ju- juggling thing.
1: Okay, Michael, I better go. Have a shower after my walk in the rain.
0: <laughs> well, with, with this podcast, Jazz, maybe um, like I am trying to um, to find uh, reasons and excuses to, to chat with people regarding the services sector as well as the general activist movements because I feel, given my own personal experience, uh, they both complement each other. It's a very unique mm-hmm. discussion. Um, I'd kind of mm-hmm. like to continue it by um, continuing to draw in people like you into my podcast web. So yeah, let's let's keep in touch a- again. Yeah, it's very excited.
1: Nice chat, actually, I feel like I've I've just like decompressed now. <laughs> a lot of things that have been on my mind. Um, I really need to get writing though, so I'll um I'll do that and look for someone who wants to publish
0: shit that I write about anti-fascism. <laughs> I-, I look forward to what you come up with, Jazz. But sure in the thing. meantime, stay safe. yeah,
1: bye.